welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are discussing a short story. It is a Poirot short story. We just couldn't get enough of him after our third Poirot novel in a row, which was Evil Under the Sun. We wanted to revisit not only our favorite Belgian detective, but in some ways, that very story with Triangle at Rhodes. Intriguing. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us a little bit about the publication history on this one? Uh, Yes, I can. Uh, It was published in the UK in The Strand in May of 1936 as Poirot and the Triangle at Rhodes. Interestingly, though, it was actually published first in the US in February of 1936 in This Week magazine, which I actually don't know that we've come across um, before. This Week before yes. as a periodical? No, I, I does, certainly doesn't ring a bell. No. Um, and so in book form, it was collected in Murder in the Muse and Other Stories, which is a collection of four longer Christie short stories, closer to novella length. Rhodes is the shortest of the four, although it is quite a bit longer than a lot of the Poirot short stories that we have read. And Indeed. that collection was published, of course, by Collins Crime Club in 1937, and then, by, of course, Dodd Mead in the U.S., also in 1937, although it was called Dead Man's Mirror, which is another story in that collection. All right, fantastic. Let's talk about our victim, who is Valentine Chantry, mm, a 39-year-old exotic. fashion model. What's that? What an exotic name. I know, I know. Valentine Chantry. Well, it's a name that doesn't even necessarily sound like a woman woman's name to me. I tend to think Valentine is a man's name, but this is a lady. And she is a 39-year-old fashion model slash socialite type who has been famous for a lot of different reasons since she was 16 years old. Her beauty, her caprices, her wealth, her enormous sapphire blue eyes, her five husbands, and her, quote, innumerable lovers, end quote. So to my mind, she's a quasi Elizabeth Taylor without the acting chops. Sure. (laughs) Like Elizabeth Taylor without a lot of the talent. Anyway, she slurps down a pink gin and promptly dies. Yes. Let's talk about her suspects. Well, uh, first and foremost on the list is Commander Chantry, the husband, of course. He's a silent dark with a pugnacious jaw and a sullen manner, a touch of the primeval ape about him. Sounds sexy. Very charming. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have Douglas Gold, who is very much presented to us as the other man. And he is, quote, extremely good looking in an almost theatrical manner. Very fair crisply curling hair, blue eyes, broad shoulders, narrow hips. So in that he is fair instead of tanned, this is Christie going a bit outside the box. But otherwise, I would call him a regulation Christie hottie. Right. And Although he's he, got the crispy curling hair. What, what more do you need? I mean, in the blue eyes. <laughs> exactly. Don't forget the narrow hips. Well, and also, you know, he's also known to be a swimmer, which as we know from, you know, we can talk about this in a bit, but yet another um, parallel to Evil Under the Sun. Yes, I got the sense that Douglas Gold and Patrick Redfern look exactly the same. Yes, I think that that seems accurate. Uh, Moving on from him, we have Marjorie Gold, who's Douglas's wife, a small woman, rather like a mouse. And that's kind of it. As in Evil Under the Sun, we also have, like, a number of resort goers who 
populate the story and actually take up a lot of page time, but they're never presented as suspects. Just to run down the list, who are they, Kemper? Okay, I'll run through these guys and keep it snappy because they're not worth a lot of time here. But first up, we have Pamela Lyle, who is a busybody and chatterbox extraordinaire. Then Sarah Blake, Pam's bestie, whose only characteristic, and I'm really not exaggerating here, is that she tans well. She, yes, she, she does. She gets a nice, deep, even bake on her. That's really about Yeah, and Pamela has a problem with it because she's much spottier in her tanning. Yeah, Pamela casts a lot of longing glances at her friend Sarah's brown back. Right. (laughs) Last and least, we have General Barnes, who is the typical sort of military type that we see in these Christie novels, who is often, though not always, of very little interest to both us as readers and other characters in the novel. And that really is the case here. Right. So the world as it appears to be, we're not on some kind of version of Berg Island. We are not off the coast of Devon. We are, in fact, in Rhodes. That's right. Monsieur Poirot. Yep. He's done it once again, right? He has made such a bizarre vacation choice. We know so well that he has mal de mer. He doesn't like being in this heat or the sun, and he doesn't like sand because it gets on his shoes, and he doesn't like outdoor activities. And yet... So many times we keep finding him en vacances on an island in, you know, the Mediterranean here, just off the coast of Turkey. But we've seen him also in various places in France, etc. It just seems a consistently odd choices for him. It's really, really strange. And when this story opens, he's in an even deeper circle of hell than usual because Pamela Lyle, the chatterbox who we just mentioned, is chewing his ear off on the beach about the newest arrivals to the resort the golds and the chantries. And while doing so, she casually asks him to rub her sunbathing oil into her back. She's like, oh, could you just reach below my shoulder blade? I can't get it. And poor Poirot complies because he is chivalrous. And then we hear of him rubbing his oily hand on his handkerchief and he's just in hell. And it's like, Poirot, it doesn't have to be this way. Why do you keep going to these places that you hate? Just go to some nice fancy hotel, get some heavy food. It'll have central heating. You can eat a lot, drink a lot of syrup and chocolate and all the good things you like. Do the things you like. Why are you torturing yourself? I don't get it. It's very, very unclear why he keeps choosing these resorts. But, you know, (laughs) it is what it is. Anywho, uh, enter the golds and the chantries onto the beach. And here we have almost exactly the same setup as the marshals and the red ferns in Evil Under the Sun. Down to details. And so Valentine here is a lot more obvious. Uh, There's some kind of Freudian business in which she is really upset that she can't screw off the top of her sunbathing oil and she gets Douglas Gold to help her and says stuff like, I'm such a fool at undoing things. I always seem to screw them the wrong way. Oh, you've done it. Thank you ever so much. It's like (laughs) Jessica Rabbit on like it's really not good. It's Jessica Rabbit meets Marilyn Monroe meets Betty Boop. Right. Meets the character that Kristen Wiig plays in SNL. That's joking about that trope. It's pretty ridiculous. Yes. So Valentine's husband, Commander Chantry, is no idiot, but he's just generally a grumpster. So even though he seems to be aware that his wife is flirting with this other man, he just seems to hate everyone and life in general. 
so he he just grumps his way through things. And then as for poor mousy wallflower Mrs. Gold, who wears this unbecoming bathing cap, at first she seems totally unaware of the attraction between her crisply curling-haired hubby and Valentine Chantry, very much like Mrs. Redfern in Evil Under the Sun. But then over time, she seems to grow wise to it. And with that wisdom, she becomes increasingly upset about the situation. Right. And so this culminates in a scene at the Mount of the Prophet, a spot high above the sea where Poirot is, you know, trying to get in a little self-reflection. He's maybe doing like a eat, pray, love, you know, it's (laughs) unclear entirely uh, what he's doing up there, but he's interrupted by a sobbing Marjorie Gold. And of course he can't escape because there's nowhere to escape too, and she essentially beelines it towards them. And she asks Poirot what she should do, and he tells her to leave the island if she values her life. And he says it repeatedly to her. And she tells him that, well, Douglas will never agree to that. He's under Valentine's spell now, and she couldn't possibly leave him. And Poirot insists that no matter what, if she wants to fix the situation, she needs to leave the island. He's right. adamant so of about course it. that doesn't happen. Yeah. Oh, he's quite he's quite adamant about it. And of course she doesn't take it as his advice. They don't leave. And things seem to get worse. Commander Shantry confronts Douglas Gold, and this happens in front of General Barnes and Pamela Lyall, telling him, As long as I'm alive, Valentine will remain my wife, and then the commander storms away. Curiously, we never hear what Douglas Gold has to say in that interaction, but more that later. And then after dinner, there's a reconciliation, surprisingly. No one really, other than the two men, knows how or why it could have taken place because things had been so bad between them. But the commander and Douglas are undeniably playing pool together, and they're very friendly with each other, or about as friendly as the grumpy commander can get. And they reconvene in the bar where Douglas buys drinks for everyone. And there is a bit of hijinks where Douglas doesn't understand what a syrup de cassis is, which Poirot orders, which is a black currant syrup. And honestly, sounds kind of good to me, like a kind of high class, more refined Shirley Temple. Like there's no alcohol Ooh, in it. But, I don't um, know. Sure I delicious. don't know, though. I was almost picturing him just drinking it like it was pure like grenadine. Like it wasn't like it was mixed in seltzer or something like a Shirley Temple. Oh, like there's no seltzer. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You're probably I right. I think he's, I am right. I think he's just drinking like <laughs> the pure syrup, which I'm going to be honest, sounds repulsive. Now I'm just imagining his ma- his entire mouth being black on the inside. <laughs> As he's drinking, it. <laughs> it's like deep gummy purple from the yeah. I, As everyone looks on horrified, <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, I think that you're giving it a little bit too much credit to think that he's drinking a blackberry flavored Shirley Temple because I don't think that's what All it right. is. <laughs> well, fair enough. But the only important drink order here is the pink gin that the commander requests. Right. And then the ladies return from a lovely evening drive. Valentine invited Marjorie. So the ladies, I guess, are also in on this reconciliation. And Pamela and Sarah also tagged along. Everything is super chill and cool and drinks for the ladies. And Valentine orders a pink gin because she orders the same drink as her husband. We saw it earlier. And it's then that he very obligingly gives her his because he hasn't touched it. Uh, Valentine chugs it on down and, oh, several minutes later, she's dead. She's very, very dead. And it turns out that there was stropanthin 
in the drink, which is a form of heart poison. And it also turns out that stropanthin was found in the dinner jacket of Douglas Gold. Uh-oh. So it looks like Douglas Gold meant to kill Commander Chantry and, oops, accidentally killed his lady love instead. That is where we are at the end of the world, as it seems to be. Now let's talk about the world as it actually is. Well, there aren't really a lot of clues here. And we can see where Christy took basically the same story and expanded it into Evil Under the Sun. A very similar premise. Both of which hinge on a misunderstanding as to what the relationships are amongst four people in two couples. And she populates it um, in Evil Under the Sun with a lot of time-worn clues that we went through before. Costuming, temporal deception, etc. Here we don't have any of that. There isn't room for it. So all we have really as clues are to figure out what the actual relationship dynamics are. Right. Yeah, this is all just figuring out the relationships among these four people. So clue number one, we hear a lot from Marjorie Gold and from Commander Chantry. Valentine is, of course, our victim, so we don't really have to be all that suspicious about what Valentine is or isn't saying. But we really do hear very, very little from Douglas Gold. And this is particularly glaring when Chrissy recounts that argument that he and Commander Chantry had about Valentine because it was only Commander Chantry that we heard from. And it is odd, even as written. Right. When we're, when we're reading the story. So it would make a very astute reader begin to wonder, have we ever actually heard Douglas Gold speak about his obsession with Valentine Chantry from his own lips and or act on that obsession? Have we seen him act as if he actually is infatuated with Valentine Chantry? And the answer really is that we have not. No. And this is a difference, actually, between Triangle at Rhodes and Evil Under the Sun, because even though in Evil Under the Sun, it doesn't turn out that Patrick Redfern was actually infatuated with Arlena Marshall, he was pretending to be. It's not as if there was nothing going on there. Here, though, we never actually get that evidence. There's not even the pretense. And our deduction, if we're super astute, should be that Douglas Gold was never actually into Valentine Chantry. That, sure, Valentine may have been into him, which is why she initiated a flirtation via that, oh, gosh, I can't unscrew this cap ah, business. But we never actually see Douglas Gold pursue her. And that should make us suspicious of the people who can't stop talking about uh, his supposed infatuation, i.e. his wife and the commander, because they certainly talk about it a whole lot. Yeah, they do. So clue number two is opportunity. And this is a little tricky because if Commander Chantry was the intended victim, as he is in the world as it appears to be, then the only person who had the opportunity to poison his drink is, in fact, Douglas Gold. But what if Valentine was the intended victim all along. It's worth considering that solely because, well, all of a sudden, that really changes the dynamics of who had the opportunity. And not just the opportunity, but by far the best opportunity to slip something into the drink. And it's her husband, the commander, because it was his drink. And he gives it to her. And he also knew that she would want his drink because that's what we know that she orders. She orders pink gins. You can look at that and say, well, he, of course, knows her drink order. I mean, there's an argument that also Douglas Gold does, too. But still, he has less of an opportunity there. Right. You know, the 
intended victim seems to be Commander Shantry, but starting with Peril at Endhouse and going on down to a later Miss Marple that I won't name check right now for fear of spoiling since we haven't gotten there, the idea that the intended victim actually turns out to be the murderer is one that Christie played with very often. So just the fact that Commander Shantry seems to be the one who was intended to be murdered should actually make us a little suspicious of him anyway. Right. Like we should always be thinking of that as a possibility within a Christie puzzle mystery, even a small one like this. So the, our resolution to the story is this. Poirot sussed out what was happening long ago, which is that Commander Shantry, who hates his current wife, Valentine, and is itching to get rid of her, is actually having an affair with Marjorie Gold, right. who is in fact an attractive type, quote, in her demure Madonna poor little thing way. So her being a mousy wallflower is a misdirect. And Poirot even lists a bunch of fictional murderesses who also fall into this type, which is a really odd little section. And I will admit, I even tried to Google some of those names because it was so specific. It was. And it's just given as this list that I was like, are these real people? But as far as I can tell, they are not. (laughs) Yeah, I wondered the same thing, but they were probably just stand-ins for other known murderesses. Right, right. The whole the idea of like the little, the demure little lady who turns out to be the spider attracting the fly, that kind of trope. Right. And guess what? We've talked about this before. The turn of the century had quite a number of lady poisoners. Absolutely. Commander Shantry and Mrs. Gold together created the impression that poor doofy, crisply curling-haired Douglas Gold was into Valentine Shantry, but he never was. And this is the innovation within this story that doesn't exist in Evil Under the Sun. The triangle that seems to exist is not the triangle that actually exists, because it seems that the triangle is Douglas Gold, Marjorie Gold, and Valentine Shantry. But the triangle is actually Commander Shantry, Douglas Gold, and Marjorie Gold. There are two men in love with the same woman as opposed to two women in love with the same man. Right. So when Poirot was warning Mrs. Gold about leaving if she valued her life, what he meant was, don't go through with it because you're going to get caught by me because I am Hercule Poirot and executed for murder. Right. So if you value your life... You should leave this island. Right. There is one little note that I would say. I didn't quite know what to do with it because he warns her not to commit murder. But when he's asked why he didn't warn Valentine, because he saw basically the whole thing coming. And Mm -hmm. when asked why he didn't warn Valentine, he says, well, she seemed too stupid. (laughs) She was too stupid to do anything useful with the information I've right. given her. Yeah, that's and I mean, it's almost that's not verbatim what he says, but it is exactly what he means. That's what he means. I know that's not too nice. He could have at least given her the benefit of the doubt, huh? I mean, made some little marginal effort, I suppose, because he's he saw what was going to happen. So um, I think it's um, Pamela who basically says to him, uh, shouldn't you maybe have tried a little harder? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you could call it a double triangle, the idea that there's one triangle that seems to be happening here, but it's actually another triangle. The double triangle is unique to Triangle at Rhodes, whereas this character flip that happens with Arlena Marshall in Evil Under the Sun is unique to that story, I think, because Valentine Chantry 
seems pretty pathetic from the very beginning. I mean, as soon as she goes onto the beach, she seems fairly desperate and sort of stupid. And the way that she's portrayed is not as glamorous and man-eating and powerful, you know? Well, although she still still accomplishes all of that. You know, there's another good line later where, again, Pamela says something to the effect of men always say that they respect the kind of frumpsters, but yet at the end of the day, it's always the sort of Valentines who really get what they want. No, I agree with that. I think that she improved on the relationship dynamics between Triangle at Rhodes, which she wrote before Evil Under the Sun, and then the novel version Evil Under the Sun, because I think in making Arlena Marshall more of a worthy adversary, it's then not perhaps as obvious to Poirot that she is going to be murdered. So we don't get this notion that, oh, well, I knew it all along what was going to happen to her. And she's just so stupid and insignificant that uh, I didn't even warn her. Like The dynamics are a bit more nuanced (laughs) in Evil Under the Sun (laughs) than they are here. And Poirot comes out better in them, you know? Right. I mean, Um, he didn't understand what was happening in Evil Under the Sun before it was actually going to happen. He just sensed evil in general. Correct. And then here, like, there's also, you know, the idea that Poirot himself kind of reluctantly says when pushed there's a line about can you imagine spending more than a few minutes with her valentine and poirot is basically <laughs> like uh yeah no that would not be something that i would ever do right so the way that this played out is that poirot didn't see commander chantry put the stropanthin in the drink itself before it was handed to valentine because if he did he presumably would have stopped things mm-hmm. <laughs> one hopes one may be assured that of course he, he would have stopped things but once valentine died he never stopped watching the commander because he knew what was happening and that is why he saw with his own eyes the commander slip the remaining stropanthin into douglas gold's jacket and poirot is a good witness and the police always listen to him so the commander is taken away and he breaks down and presumably confesses Marjorie Gold's part in it as well because we definitely get the sense that Poirot's warning to her which she did not heed is very much to her detriment and that she will in fact be executed right. for murder. Right. The end. Yeah, the end. It's a slightly odd story mostly because of Poirot's almost nonchalance about the fact that he knows something terrible is going to happen. Yeah, the specificity with which he understands everything that's happening before it happens and doesn't do much to prevent it is bizarre. And again, that problem is solved in Evil Under the Sun because it's just more of a general sense of evil. He doesn't exactly know that Patrick and his wife are pretending in the same way that he does know that the commander and Marjorie are having this secret affair. So it is definitely bizarre. I just think it's interesting because we've come across Christy expanding a short story into a novel before, We'll come across it again. She did this with Dumb Witness. She did it with, actually, The Mystery of the Blue Train, which had an earlier <laughs> short story, The Plymouth Express. Every, everybody's, which fav- was very everybody, much just everybody's favorite, Christy. <laughs> 
Right, right. Everyone's favorite Christie. And often, honestly, and, and, and as listeners of this podcast will know, we are not fans of Dumb Witness, although many, some of them as esteemed as Sophie Hanna, are very much fans of Dumb Witness. But I think it often doesn't work out that well. That's not exactly the situation that we have here, because the short story, even though the characters are similar and the setup is similar, and in some ways even the setting is similar, it's still a, a sort of holiday resort locale, the puzzle is slightly different. It hinges on a slightly different solution. And I just think it's interesting that she was able to pull two different puzzle mysteries out of such similar material. It just shows the fertility of her imagination and her creativity as a mystery writer. So I think we could say with some accuracy that this short story stands on its own as, uh, you know, a a distinct entity from... It does. It's, It's very readable. I mean, I think that the twist in both of them is actually weirdly enough though underestimating the mousy female character mm-hmm. that's essentially like the linchpin of both evil under the sun and triangle at Rhodes. is that if you see past that you're much closer to the solution which i mean is something yeah, that she likes to do right which is to play off of subverting expectations it's the same expectation that's being subverted in both Yeah. Although I will say that the dynamics, the character dynamics and the relationship dynamics in Evil Under the Sun are identical to Death on the Nile, which is why so many people compare those two novels. But it's not the same in Triangle at Rhodes, because what we have in those two novels is the original relationship is the one that in fact sticks, even though it didn't seem to stick. Right. It seemed like there was a female interloper who destroyed the original relationship be it an engagement or an actual marriage. But in fact, that original relationship was the one that stuck, and this is all a ruse to commit murder. Whereas in Triangle at Rhodes, both original relationships are broken and not working. <laughs> so no, correct. There is, there is that difference. But yes, I think overlooking the mousy wife and thinking that she couldn't be an object of interest either to other people or in and of herself as someone who has her own power and agency, that is a mistake in all of these stories. Correct. And and there are actually... A, not that Jackie is mousy. But. No. <laughs> but there are some... But she's not Lynette either. Right. She's not Lynette. Yeah. I mean, and there are some tells in this early on. Like, it's noted that Mrs. Gold has actually quite a lovely figure. And that if it weren't actually for, like, her ugly bathing cap, she would be quite pretty. Right. Christine is noted to be attractive in her own way. She sort right. of has a pale, a pale beauty to her, a pale sort of right. colorless blonde beauty to her. But yeah, as always, Christy plays fair. These things yeah. don't come out of nowhere. No, they don't. Two other points I wanted to note before we move quickly to the adaptation. I think it's interesting that this is collected within Murder in the Muse and most of the contemporary reviews of this collection pointed to Triangle at Rhodes as by far the weakest of any of those stories. I think it's just because she didn't have a lot of room to create deep enough characters in a puzzle mystery that does hinge on character and relationship, which is exactly what she then went on to do, even though she did it a little differently in Evil Under the Sun. So I have to wonder if the reaction to this one didn't lead to the novel treatment that we got in Evil Under the Sun. Right. It also makes me excited to read those other three 
short story slash novellas, which we will cover at some point. We haven't covered them thus far, but I'm excited because I do remember liking all of them. Yeah, I, I did too. And I, I liked reading this. You know, it has imperfections, but it's not unenjoyable. Absolutely. The other thing I, I wanted to mention is that Parker Pine at least at one point, was supposed to be the detective in this story, as opposed to Monsieur Poirot. And we do have a bunch of Parker Pine traveling short stories. We only covered one of them, which was Death on the Nile, but we will get to others. So that's not too much of a surprise. And by far, whenever there's some interchanging of detectives in Christie, it's usually Poirot and Parker Pine. They're actually a couple of Poirot stories that were later turned into Parker Pine. So in a way, perhaps this is the reverse of that. At one point, at least, she was thinking it would be a Parker Pine and then turned it into a Poirot. So I'm certainly glad it's a Poirot short story. I suspect, Catherine, that you are too. I always am. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about the David Suchet adaptation, which is the only adaptation we have of this one. This is super early. We are in series slash season one, episode six, And it aired just before Problem at Sea, which we already covered. That was the one where Poirot did his creepy doll ventriloquism show on a boat to give the murderer a heart attack and kill him. Yes. If you remember that one. I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they were filmed together because they were both actually filmed on location. (laughs) Yeah, how could we forget? They were both filmed on location in the Mediterranean. So this was actually the first time that the show went on location. This episode actually is on the island of Rhodes, and it's gorgeous as the show so often is. It looks fantastic. Yeah. When they go all out and it's not just like that one road in like in the British countryside that they had to have like a car chase down. <laughs> There's no truck backing up into a country lane no. in this uh, episode. <laughs> this was actually the first episode in the series not to feature Hastings, Jap, and Miss Lemon, which is why we get that weird little prologue at the beginning. No good leaving all this stuff for 56 beats and on holiday. Well, all of them? Oh, yeah. Now Captain Hastings has gone off shooting things, and the secretary has gone off to visit her sister in Folkestone. Well, what about the French one? Somewhere foreign. Sent me a postcard with goats on it. Oh, yeah. I remember. Let's hope it keeps fine for him. And then we cut to Poirot on vacances. It's very, very faithful because I think actually a 32-page novella is probably the perfect length for a 50-minute episode. Right. You know, normally we see some padding that has to be done to especially some of the slighter early Poirot stories to get them to 50 minutes. And then, of course, we have some pairing that has to be done to the novel-length episodes. But they were pretty much able to stick to the text. There is a little bit of espionage hoo-ha going on with General. Uh, He's now Major Barnes, actually, in the story that we don't really have to talk all that much about. And even Poirot himself is suspected of being a spy, and he's trying to leave the island and then he gets drawn back into it. So there's a little bit of padding, but not much. I, and there, um, There's also a chase scene. There is, of course. <laughs> we have our obligatory additional chase scene on motorboat, no less. Dynamite! Keep away! Keep away! Find the company! Drop the dynamite of Michel Fire! Stand off! Stand off! Parate! 
it is different than slow moving cars trying to avoid that backing up lorry. <laughs> we also had no Sarah Blake, no deeply tanned Sarah Blake. Um, and Pamela Lyle is sort of the Hastings stand in for the episode, which happens sometimes. And she's given a lot more to do and a lot of personality. And I thought the actress who played her actually handled the character well. And she was a lot better in the episode, certainly, than she is in the story. I don't mind her as much in the story as I think that you seemed to. Um, But I do think it's funny that you do occasionally get this in the adaptations where Poirot gets like a young woman assistant. It's true. I mean, it, it happens obviously a little bit. In some of the stories and books, too. So, I mean, it's like not, Death in the Clouds. Yeah. He gets a lady assistant of sorts. I don't know if that was, well, it clearly had to be deliberate. It's just funny to occasionally see that, like wanting to play off like some ingenue off of Suchet. They probably in, enjoyed being able to insert that element into the series whenever they could, both the producers and and Suchet himself. Um, I just had two points I wanted to make about the adaptation. One is that we do have an extra clue that is inserted in here and very much borrowed from Lord Edgeware Dies. I mean, lifted from Lord Edgeware Dies. When did you first realize about Mrs. Gold? Her performance was without fault except in one particular. That scene she created at the taverna she suggested that her husband wanted a divorce. Eh bien, I had just observed that Monsieur Gold was a Catholic. The whole thing did not make sense. Unless, of course, we were watching the elaborate charade. And I suspect it's because... As they were adapting it, they realized, hmm, there really aren't any clues in this story, so we need to fabricate one. It's a little goofy. I, I don't know if I actually really needed it, but that is inserted. Yeah. And then I just thought it was interesting that the original story, you could argue, is slightly more scandalous, at least as it opens up. We are on the hot sand and in the water, and I feel like we we can feel the kind of visceral resort holidaying that is going on here. Poirot is rubbing oil into a lady's back. Valentine Chantry is fumbling with the cap and practically making Freudian double entendres about things. And the adaptation is much more buttoned up, a little bit more classy. And just funny to me because this is in in season one when the series had a little bit more of an lighthearted innocence to it. Because in later seasons, as we've talked, such as in Sad Cypress and even Death on the Nile, they were doing the opposite, which they were sexing it up. Yeah. They were taking a lot of liberties with it. So it's just funny to me that they pulled in such a different direction in later seasons. We often just talk about tone, but this is a bit more, I think, of a nuance to look at the ways in which the earlier seasons differ from the later. And I, and as I always come down on this, I so much prefer the earlier seasons to the later seasons. Um, I mean, I generally do from an entertainment standpoint, although I think that some of the best episodes are some of the later ones. It's just... It's true. Um, it's true. I, okay. I love them all, obviously, but I just... Those early seasons just have such joy in them. Yes, some they do. Them. Yes. That is it for Triangle at Rhodes. Join us next week for a novel episode. We are so excited that we are covering our next novel, N or M, a Tommy and Tuppence, World War II, Spy Adventure. I know that there are a lot of Christie fans out there who do not love 
Tommy and Tuppence. They find them annoying, and I would have put myself in that category before this podcast, but I know that at least I have developed an affection for them after doing the close reading that we did on Secret Adversary and Partners in Crime. So I'm really excited about Um, revisiting. Listen, I even like some low production quality 1980s Tommy and Tuppence adaptations at this point. So... Um, <laughs> yeah, if you can make your peace with the Francesca Annis James Warwick adaptation, I, I think that means you've drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I drank the Tommy and Tuppence Kool-Aid, and I am excited to meet them again because, as we've mentioned before, we are not going to have youngsters Tommy and Tuppence anymore when we meet them again next week. Absolutely. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. We're on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we would love it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you are listening to this podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.